Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today the Fraser Institute's Jason Clemens looks at the federal budget and sees socialist. Vancouver 2030 CEO Emilio Rivero has a lot to say about taxpayers having a vote on hosting the games again. And Steve Mossop, Leger Vice President in Vancouver, says Canadians are okay with lower defense spending, more so than our allies are. So let's get started. Our next guest wrote a column in the Sun newspaper group this week entitled Why It's Reasonable to Call Trudeau a Modern-Day Socialist. The author, Jason Clemens, Executive Vice President of the Fraser Institute, who joins us now. Jason, good morning and happy Easter. Good morning. Happy Easter to you and your listeners. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. It's good of you to give us a little bit of your time. You wrote an article with your colleague Niels Veldhaus from the Fraser Institute in the Sun newspaper group a couple of days ago, Jason, entitled, Why It's Reasonable to Call Trudeau a Modern-Day Socialist. And on your website, on I believe the same day, uh, came an article entitled, The Budget Gives Us More Ottawa when we need less. I suspect there's a rather strong link between those two columns. Can you sort of connect the dots for us this morning, please? In the first article, what we tried to explain is the evolving nature of what we mean by the term socialist, um, as obviously language evolves. And so, you know, very few people refer to socialists now as, as people who want to nationalize industries and they want the government to own the banks or the airlines or steel companies or what have you. Mm-hmm. The degree to which government redistributes income. And so they accept that we have private businesses, but they want higher tax rates so that they have more resources that they then direct to the particular groups that they deem should have more income. Right. Uh, and that's clearly what the Trudeau government has been doing since uh, being elected in 2015. Uh, the amount of redistribution has increased, both in terms of existing programs, expanding existing programs, and introducing new programs. Moreover, the, the Prime Minister's approach, uh, particularly to issues like climate change and emissions, and energy transition have almost exclusively been bottomed down. That is, rather than creating an environment where individuals and entrepreneurs and families are making more informed decisions, the Prime Minister at every turn has uh, relied on top-down decisions. That is, Ottawa forcing decisions on people. Right. Um, and that's that, that really is the frontier of modern socialism. And so... The the second article was really going through the budget and in case after case showing that when the prime minister had a decision to make, whether to stabilize spending, reduce the deficit, and perhaps even reduce taxes, he made a different decision, which is I'm going to spend more money, I'm going to borrow more money, and I'm going to regulate more. Uh, Again, all of which I think points to that we have uh, a very activist government in Ottawa, though they're not willing to pay the price because they're not willing to raise taxes by and large and, and they're borrowing, um, which, you know, now, unfortunately, we are in an environment of increasing interest rates. And so there's a real risk that the cost of the amount of spending that the Trudeau government has done since 2016 
is going to come home uh, and impact Canadians much sooner than I think the Trudeau government had envisioned. Yeah, and that's a good point about taxes, too, Jason, that you make this morning, because uh, so far there haven't been too many terribly huge tax increases, and part of that is due to enhanced government revenues, inflation being a factor, certainly the world price of oil and other commodities also being a factor, but... Do you not think, I certainly do, do you not think it's inevitable and probably more sooner than later that we are going to have tax increases? We did a little thing yesterday about this whole business of a proposed tax on pickups, which I do believe is coming, and more other sort of nitpicky little taxes like that. I see nothing but more of that uh, in the on the road ahead and out of necessity because, as you point out, interest rates have only one way to go, and that's up, and they're just getting started. Yeah, I think it's a great insight. So to date, I would agree with you that the, the Trudeau government, by and large, has done kind of small at the margin tax increases that it's hard to understand. So, for example, in 2016, they eliminated quite a few tax credits and tax deductions, which actually increased taxes for about 80 percent of middle income earners. The recent budget increased taxes on banks and insurance companies. Yep. How do those tax increases affect them in terms of their RSPs and investments in banks and insurance companies and or the fees that they pay at banks and insurance companies, which that's where that tax is going to get passed on to. But what the Liberals have not done is increase major taxes on middle-income people in a way that's transparent because, in my view at least, the polling data is very clear that when you ask Canadians, do you want a program, do you want pharmacare, do you want dental care, there's very high support. But when you ask them, do you want those same programs, if it means an increase in the GST, support plummet. Right. Because the reality is most Canadians feel overtaxed. And so right now, the Trudeau government, I think, is disingenuously presenting a false uh, bargain with Canadians in that they're saying you can have these programs and not pay for it because we're just going to borrow money. And at some point, Canadians are going to be presented with a decision, which is we're going to have to pay higher taxes for these programs or we're going to have to have less programs. And, and I do agree with you. I, I think that is around the corner. Right. Uh, final question to you, Jason, and we're grateful for your time this morning. Did it surprise you in the budget? If there's one lesson that we've learned during the last two years of the pandemic, it's how incredibly fragile our health care system is. Every province and territory in the country has requested greater funding uh, capability from Ottawa. And that could have been an easy first response to a national pandemic, and yet there was no increase in transfer payments for health care anywhere. Did that surprise you? Uh, well, I, I, I guess my disappointment is that we're not having the more important conversation in health care, which is our health care system was bad before COVID. Uh, if you look at the OECD for countries that provide universal health care, we're about the second highest spender as a share of GDP or a share of the economy. But if you look at measures, access to doctors, wait times, we're either middle of the pack or, or actually, in many measures, bottom of the pack. Right. So the, the COVID experience just, in my mind, just brought to bear the fact that we have a badly designed healthcare system. And thank goodness for all the dedicated people, uh, nurses and doctors and staff, who, who I frankly think are keeping the system together with band-aids and, and pull strings. But 
the system itself is badly designed. And so throwing more money at a badly designed system is just not the answer. The answer is we need fundamental reform. And, and unfortunately, and in fact, what's interesting is the polling data shows that Canadians are very open to health reform. Yep. Unfortunately, Canadians are two steps ahead of most, well, actually all politicians on this issue right now. Interesting stuff. Jason Clements, always a provocative moment or two when you and I engage on the radio. We do thank you for taking time out of your Easter Sunday morning to do it with us again. Thanks very much and have a great day. My pleasure. Thank you. According to the Vancouver Sun, as the Canadian Olympic Committee studies the feasibility of a potential Vancouver 2030 Games bid, the leaders of the Canadian Olympic Committee say an unaffiliated group calling itself Vancouver 2030 is creating some confusion and not being terribly helpful. Our next guest says, well, I'm kind of disappointed to hear that you think we're creating confusion. Uh, he's the, the president, the CEO of Vancouver 2030, and if you go to their website, Vancouver over 2030.org. It's all about reigniting the passion. A pleasure to welcome Emilio Rivero, the CEO of Vancouver 2030, uh, to the show this morning. Emilio, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling, and good morning to all your audience. And, and Thank you for having us. Well, it's good to have you with us, Emilio. Happy Easter to you, sir. And before we begin our conversation about the Olympics coming back possibly to Vancouver in a few years, tell us where you are this morning. This is quite a story all uh, unto itself. You're joining us today from a very remote location. Are you in Guatemala, Emilio, or are you in Mexico? I'm in the border between Guatemala and Mexico, uh, basically in the jungle. Um, my daily job, I'm a social entrepreneur. I set up a factory about six years ago to produce uh, efficient wood cooking stoves. As you know, well, um, most of people don't know, but the second or third largest cause of death around the world is basically open fire cooking. And it kills about 4.7 million people every year. Hmm. And, uh, well, we set up, my, my group and I, daily job set up to try to help this by giving people um, low-cost uh, free cooking stoves where they don't get poisoned by the smoke every time they cook. So you're down, now these stoves, are they made here in Canada or are they made locally down in uh, Guatemala? Well, the project is Canadian, U.S. and Mexican technology, mm-hmm. but uh, because of logistics, the factories in Mexico. Right. Well, that would make much more sense. You'd want to have the production point close to where they're, they're going to be most useful, Correct. And cheaper production. Sure, sure, of course. It all, <laughs> this it is all my daily matters. Job. Uh, the Vancouver 2030 basically is my passion along with the people that, that I serve as CEO. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about yourself, Emilio, because you come to Vancouver 2030 with some Vancouver 2010 in your back pocket. Tell us about what you did during the other Winter Games, the ones we already had. Yeah, well, I started, uh, I joined Bannock about three three and a half years before games time on their protocol team. Um, before games time, you move a lot with different tasks, but during games time, basically, I took care of uh, uh, dignitaries, basically, uh, the PP, the protected people, inter- IPPs, international protected people, right. and that is uh, heads of state, heads of government, royalty, and a few others. So you got to deal with uh, the creme de la creme, so to speak, in terms of the guest list, but also had several years of experience in putting the games and, of course, the ultimate guest list together. So what would you say was the most valuable thing you learned during your time with Vanock? Um, 
unity, uh, passion, uh, being Canadian. Um, I can talk about that experience for hours, Sterling, but I think if you ask me what I still, what it still boils in, in my heart, it, it was those days of, of, of uh, feeling part of a country that's completely 100% united. It was quite a time during during uh, our uh, 2010 hosting experience. How uh, uh, we, we had a conversation with uh, Vancouver Councillor Carlene Hardwick on the show yesterday, so we could talk a little bit more about that. She wants to get to, uh, wants to get an accurate reading on how popular the return to hosting the games might be, and wanted to do uh, some kind of uh, referendum or uh, plebiscite of some kind to see what uh, Vancouverites felt. As we were asked back before the 2010. 10 games several years before that we had a vote and of the people who showed up basically two-thirds said yeah let's do it and all they're looking for is some kind of a popular indicator of support were we to go for a second round are you on side with uh, getting a taxpayer endorsement emilio well uh, our position is basically um, we want to have these games completely legitimized by a popular vote, by people having a say. We, on, we won the games back. That's why we exist. We won the games to return to Canada, to Vancouver. Okay. And we know it's a risk to go out there and ask the people if they want uh, the games or not, given the current circumstances around the world. However, uh, not having a vote, um, it would just damage uh, the spirit of the games um, if it doesn't have uh, the people, the majority of people behind it. I, I was at Tokyo 2020 uh, working about six months before games time. Okay. And it was absolute horror. I had to take off my uniform at the subway because the majority of people in Tokyo or the majority of people in Japan did not want the games to be there. Right. And, and I have never thought I would feel so ashamed of wearing the rings on my <laughs> uh, on my chest uh, because people would actually insult me on the subway, and uh, that's something I don't think would be good for Canada or or, or Vancouver to repeat. So I want these games. When I say I, uh, my group definitely stands on the part of let's have these games legitimized by by vote, right? By having uh, something that uh, gives the people the chance to say if they really won the games or not. We hope and we believe that uh, because of Vancouver 2010, the majority will say, yes, we won the games back. It's right. something great to look forward. Right, and of course, as was the case when we had the vote, it was uh, seven years before the 2010 game, so that would have been in 2003. I can remember this. Uh, about half the eligible population uh, turned out to vote, and of that group, roughly two-thirds said, sure, let's go ahead. Now, Councillor Hardwick, who proposed this vote for Vancouver taxpayers and had it, had it rejected uh, the last over the last few days, said, according to the Memorandum of Understanding, there are four First Nations group plus the municipality of Whistler and Vancouver. And Councillor Hardwick said each of those signatories are responsible for going out and canvassing their individual constituencies to find out what kind of support there is for this uh, Olympic bid. So the various First Nations will do that internally, as will Whistler. So why shouldn't Vancouver? Uh, and uh, I, I don't now the, the, the argument being made against a plebiscite by a 
what appears to be a majority on Vancouver City Council is that somehow or another that would jeopardize reconciliation, uh, an argument I find impossible to uh, believe. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a it's it's served to be enough of a dissuasion that that vote ha- will not happen, at least uh, uh, according to the the original intent, which would have been on the ballot this November uh, at no additional cost. As for 2030, you're the CEO of this group of enthusiastic supporters, Emilio. Uh, would you have preferred to see at least get it over with kind of thing? Throw it on the ballot in the fall and give the bid people some more ammunition to take to the IOC. I, I, I completely agree to what you just said. Um, it would have been uh, very inexpensive to do it uh, the way Councillor was proposing it. We are apolitical. I don't even know to which party she is affiliated to. Right. But uh, the idea of having that vote uh, was, uh, as I said, perfect uh, way to legitimize the bid. Um, the timing was perfect. The MOU said that uh, they were going to come up with the study at the end of March. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know what's going on there. And, and uh, as uh, the chief of the Moskian uh, nation said, and I, we completely agree with him, it would, it would have to be respectful of the process uh, to have what they were proposing or what they are proposing with a vote. Mm-hmm. But if you look at chronology, uh, what we knew at the time is that the, 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 the study was coming on, on March and the vote is on October. So it was perfect timing for people to know what the proposal is uh, for the bid and then have a say. So uh, it just made sense. Uh, however, as for uh, the MOU, um, I did a master's degree at the, at the Australian National University in international law. Uh-huh. And I know that the MOU, it's a legally a non-binding document. Uh, we are sure that the public consultation is by no standards a breaching of the legality of the signed document. Aha, uh-huh. okay. Now, as for the spirit of the MOU uh-huh. with the purpose vote, we believe <laughs> it is a far-fetched and very dangerous political argument saying that goes against reconciliation. Uh, Sterling, uh, let us please for a moment go back in time to April 27, 1994. And remember what story teaches us today about truth and reconciliation then. That day in South Africans of all kinds, tribes and city and ideologies went out to vote. And the world witnessed what it seemed to be nothing less than a miracle. Mm-hmm. So it was only after democracy was put in practice that the spirit of truth and reconciliation was free True. to roam and conquer the hearts and minds of the people of South Africa. So <laughs> to separate democracy the act of voting from any effort for truth and reconciliation at best is ludicrous and at worst, personally, I think it's very Machiavellian. And joining us on the line is the CEO of Vancouver 2030. A pleasure to have Emilio Rivero joining us to talk about this bid that is, well, still in the works, Emilio. Uh, as uh, Tell us a little bit more about 2030, because according to the story in the Vancouver Sun, uh, in which you were, you were accused by the Canadian Olympic Committee of, of creating confusion in the marketplace, you expressed disappointment at that analysis, but you also mentioned the fact that you've got approximately 20,000 pretty enthusiastic people on side with the games why would the canadian olympic committee take exception to that uh we don't know um you can imagine how um such an unfair and undeserved discreditation can drain 
uh, uh, organization that exists uh, of volunteers and these loving and respecting the Olympic Games. Um, I guess I can, we were accused of creating confusion, disrespecting the process. Mm -hmm. Um, First, I guess the confusion goes by the start. The the COC talks about the marketplace. Uh, I say, let's make a distinction. Marketplace uh, talks, I mean, talks to me about uh, buying, selling money. Um, We don't look at marketplaces. We're looking at communities and people. So I think that's uh, maybe that's a first uh, uh, distinction. That's why they feel the way they feel. And I, <laughs> I, I, I agree there's confusion. Uh, we said that um, there would be no confusion because we find very difficult, if not impossible, to be able to follow a process that is secret, my friend. Um, we don't know what's going on. Uh, even the Vancouver Sun, that this process is comprised of with hush-hush meetings, and uh, all votes have been held behind closed doors. Right. So in addition, there's no public consultation. So uh, we would be very happy to respect and follow a process, but for that to happen, we would need to know what that process is and then align to it to the best of our ability. So I think it's unfair to say we're disrespecting a process that is secret and behind closed doors. And perhaps uh, perhaps um, le- lobbying for transparency is considered disrespectful, Emilio. I'm not sure about that either. Lo- let's talk a little bit about w- the vote again. Back in 2003, Vancouverites had an opportunity to say yes or no to the idea of hosting the 2010 Games. We said, yeah, about two-thirds of us said, yeah. Uh, and that was seven years in advance of hosting the Games. What kind of timeline are we looking at now for 2030? When does the International Olympic Committee want to have that host city nailed down by? Well, uh, it's just a guess. I think that's a question best asked to the, uh, uh, to the IOC or, or the Canadian Olympic uh, Committee. As you know, after Brisbane or with Brisbane, um, everything on the process of selecting a host city, it's pretty much secret and behind closed doors. Yeah. So uh, everything is a guess. I think uh, by summer next year, they would have to choose which city will get the games. We're way behind uh, Sapporo and Salt Lake City and maybe even uh, Barcelona. We, we don't even have an official bid yet. That's uh, for what we understood in the conference call we, we got with, with the COC and Trisha Smith. Uh, we were told that that process is 100% on the COC's hand, and for us to kind of move aside, we got, gladly did. So we changed our purpose from pursuing a bit to promoting a bit. So all of our efforts right now it's, are in the promotion. We, we leave the pursuing to the COC and, and the MOU and the parties that signed it. All right. Now, uh, as as for now, and of course, it is difficult to, to identify a timeline and a process that is deliberately secretive. And I suppose that also lends itself to those who are well not entirely supportive of this because of the opposition to the IOC, and they see it as a giant money making machine that basically takes advantage of host cities rather than enhancing uh, the the life experience of those cities. There there have been instances, and you were in Tokyo. Uh, recently, you've followed the Olympic movement closely for a long time. There have been more than a few instances where the, the International Olympic Committee has lent itself to pretty cynical analysis. Yeah, I think they have. Uh, we we would like to stay out of politics, sure. uh, Sterling. We 
after we all have gone through in Vancouver and Canada, we want to focus on the fact that having the Olympics back in Canada will just give us something to look forward. Mm-hmm. And as Satasia White, our, our, our president of the board, she's a member of the Coast Salish Nation. She's a four-host first nation. Uh, she's uh, a very inspiring voice in our group, and she just wants this to be a uniting force for all Canadians, like it happened in 2010. And uh, the, perhaps the best way, or certainly one of the best ways to uh, illustrate that would be to allow those uh, potential supporters to go, yes, a- in a resounding endorsement. That is a political issue that is clearly up in the air and, and unlikely to be resolved in the short term. Uh, let's talk a little bit. Uh, we've only got about a minute left, Emilio. Tell us a little yes, bit sir. more about Vancouver 2030. Uh, you talked about your board chair. You're the CEO, and you got 20,000 members, and you got a website. 20, uh, it's Vancouver2030.org. Org. Tell us well, more. I, I like to leave you with our five principles, like the five rings of the Olympics. First, our first principle is that from the very get-go, we wanted the bid to be uh, led by the four host First Nations. We, it's on the record that we were one of the first ones to propose that. Second, uh, we want to have full transparency and public engagement. Third, we want these, the first Olympics, to follow ESG factors, the implementation of these factors for setting and the execution of the game. Mm-hmm. That's environmental, social, and uh, governmental factors. Fourth, uh, we want the Olympic Village uh, to be a design that leaves a legacy and a solution that helps alleviate the housing crisis in Vancouver. Yes. And fifth, uh, we want... Uh, the reuse of the venues that just makes sense to use all the venues that were used in 2010. So these are our five pillars, and uh, we we hope uh, the COC listens to us and 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 sees the the value that it has to have passionate, intelligent, professional people that have been behind games supporting the idea of the games to come back. And and kudos for the four host First Nations. I can't wait to get on board. Uh, their their project and see how we can help them best. You can learn lots more, friends, at the website. It's Vancouver2030.org. The CEO, Emilio Rivero, joining us this morning from the jungles of Guatemala. Emilio, thanks ever so much for taking time out of your mission down there. Happy Easter to you, and we'll talk again. Happy Easter to you and all your listeners. Have a good day. It has been a contentious issue in recent weeks with the war in Ukraine leading to renewed calls for Canada and other NATO allies to increase spending to 2% of GDP. The Liberals' five-year plan released in the federal budget a few days ago will come short of that, taking us up to 1.5%, even with more than $8 billion in new military spending. And according to a survey conducted by the folks at Leger just last weekend, that's enough for many Canadians. Here to talk about it is the Executive Vice President of Leger here in Vancouver. A pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Steve Mossop. Happy Easter, Steve. Happy Easter to you and thanks for having me on the show. Well, good to have you back with us. Did the numbers surprise you at all? They have because, you know, in all the years of polling that I've done, uh, about once a quarter we ask Canadians, what's the number one issue facing the country? And I can't remember the last time I ever saw military spending in even the top 15. Sure. It just, it just ranks is, is right at the rock bottom. So this time around, we asked people, uh, you know, do you think the government's spending the right amount uh, or should they be spending more or less? And about half said that they're spending the right amount. But here's where it's interesting. The, the remaining uh, proportions, uh, 34% say that they want more money in defense spending okay. and 18% say less. Now, this is significant because 
it's a, it's a real turn in public perception. You know, we've never wanted more defense spending. We haven't had an incident in 20 years that would uh, inspire Canadians to do so, but it seems to have changed. Well, it's interesting because of the fact that it's never been a priority. Uh, as you say, if it made number 15 on the hit list, that was a, a huge thing because it, it, very, it very seldom comes up, especially in polling questions. So the governments, and this is governments of all persuasions, Steve, over the years, and I'm talking about the last 20 years, have seen this lack of interest uh, by the general population in defense spending as permission not to spend much. Exactly. And everything changed. You know, we did a poll about four weeks ago, uh, and we found that uh, 74% of Canadians felt that NATO nations should prepare for military intervention. And it was driven by a similar proportion of people who really felt, uh, you know, just four weeks ago that Putin was capable of using nuclear weapons. So right. they felt that this is uh, something we should change. So in all these measures that we had about uh, involvement in the military, we saw numbers that we just haven't seen in really a lifetime of polling. I'm sure. Now, uh, did you dive at all into the the specifics of the conflict with Ukraine in terms of Canadian attitudes towards not not only just spending more generally, uh, but in terms of specific aid, more direct aid to the Ukrainian cause? There is a whole number of areas that we probed. And and the, the number one thing that Canadians feel that we should do, we've done this for a couple of generations, is welcome Ukrainian immigrants right. through an expedited process. So that's around 80% of Canadians. There's no, no debate on that one. I already mentioned the military intervention. intervention. Uh, economic sanctions also had high support, about two-thirds, because people really do feel that the conflict could last for many years. It's mm-hmm. not a, a short-term thing. Uh, we should increase our military spending. In this poll, four weeks ago, it was 58%. So at the beginning of the conflict, it was seen as, wow, we better get our, our house in order and spend more than we ever have. So, And the no-fly zone at that point in time also had the support of 50%. So, again, you know, multiple military measures that we haven't been used to seeing uh, suddenly are creeping into the, the public sentiment. But, it's, but from a polling perspective, just from a, a curiosity perspective, from a, a professional pollster like yourself, Steve, to just see that switch in national dialogue now to include to a, a much larger extent than ever before this whole notion of a conversation that includes the military isn't a significant change, isn't it? It is, and it's it's really more nonpartisan than it's ever been. So in, in the past, it's really been... And that those policies might have been supported by the conservative supporters across the country, but now it's really uh, it's really embraced by all political stripes. Interesting. I was going to ask you about that in terms of not only political demographics, but suppose geography, for example, uh, are there pockets in Canada that are more supportive of increased military spending, or are the folks in Halifax pretty much on side with the folks in Victoria? Uh, it's a minor difference, and you would expect to see this, but Alberta is, is higher. Uh, there's, there's always been more support for uh, more of a right-wing stance, if you will, in Alberta on many issues, and the military is no exception. But when I look at the chart that looks at all the other aspects of what we should or shouldn't do in the war across Canada, it's really how, how surprising how few uh, differences exist. So right across the country, everybody thinks we should increase immigration, even in Quebec, it's about the same numbers across the country. The only differences that we do tend to see is uh, on the age category. Uh, we do see resistance uh, with the 18 to 34-year-old group in terms of all military measures, uh, whereas the 35 to 54 and the 55-plus 
it's much higher, so almost 20 points higher when it comes to supporting NATO intervention to uh, allowing Ukraine to join NATO. That's another issue that we pulled on. Interesting. Uh, we have seen youth being more reticent to jump on that bandwagon. Steve, let's talk a little bit, if we can, take a step back from the specifics of defense spending, because this survey indeed was dealing with the uh, fallout or the reaction to the federal budget that was introduced by Minister Freeland just a few days ago. What's the national sentiment vis-a-vis the the budget package? Uh, The budget has always been a collective ho-hum in Canada. You know, it's really hard to engage Canadians. The exception really has only been the past couple of years when we saw a pretty massive deficit spending to get us through COVID. And now, you know, in a post-COVID world, we're still seeing deficit spending. So there's a slightly more interest, but the, the more than half of Canadians really don't follow it at all. But if we do ask people if they support or oppose the budget, it's really lukewarm. It's only about 38% who say that they support the budget and that think we're doing the right thing, that we're leaning in the right direction. And it, what's the number is about 24% who say that it's not and the rest are I don't know. So it's, it's not that interesting when we pull on budget issues because people often don't have an opinion. They just don't follow it that closely. Interesting stuff, because, of course, now we're dealing with inflation and we've just had a, a significant interest rate hike. The first, I suspect, Steve, of several in 22. Uh, people are going to react to that when it starts affecting them directly in the wallet. It is. And our, our poll just two weeks ago on inflation and interest rates was that it's a major concern. 80% concerned about uh, interest, or sorry, inflation was number one, and then about 10 points below that, about 70% who are concerned about interest rate uh, changes. So we've got uh, this economic storm on the horizon, and Canadians are worried across the country. Mm-hmm, as they should be. Uh, and finally, uh, as you take the pulse of the nation, one of the other question categories was the conservative leadership race. And how did that one turn out? Well, that's also a, a little bit of a collective yawn. There's just not that many people following it. <laughs> and it's, it's also six weeks, and, or six months, rather, until they vote, right? It is. A, a Sheree-led Tory party is the top choice for 23% of what we call decided voters that were polled. And so it's not, uh, it's not going to change the outcome of the election. We're seeing that regardless of who the leader is, uh, the, the change in popular vote is not significant enough to topple the, the Liberals at this current point. So Sheree is leading the, leading the pack uh, as uh, ahead of Polyev in terms of uh, the, the, the dedicated Tory faithful? Uh, with a slight margin, so it's not, it's not a massive uh, uh, difference between the two. Interesting stuff. Steve, it's great of you to take a little bit of time out of your Easter Sunday morning to uh, take the pulse of the nation and bring us up to date on some of your latest findings. We do appreciate it very much. Thanks again, Sterling. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.